The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. It's good to see you all. So after two weeks of uh, our Easter season, Palm Sunday, and also Easter Sunday, we are picking back up with our series, Rebuilding, which is a study in Ezra and Nehemiah. And for the first seven chapters of this book, Nehemiah, Nehemiah has led the effort to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And now the walls are finished after only 52 days, and now it's time to celebrate. And that's what Nehemiah chapter 8 is. It's really this big celebration that we're going to see take place here. And we're going to see Nehemiah take a step back, and Ezra's going to come back onto the stage, onto the scene again. So the walls have been rebuilt, but now the people need to be rebuilt. And so we're going to look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And if you're the note-taking type, I thought of a really good outline about noon yesterday, and I couldn't get up on the screen in time. So this first section, if you'd like to write stuff down, um, you can title it, Rebuilt with God's Word. So you can write that down if you want to in your notes. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So it's this amazing scene that takes place here in this, in this square in Jerusalem. You've heard of big festivals like ACL or South by Southwest. This is like one big Bible festival that breaks out. And the Bible is the opening act, the middle act, and the encore. And uh, all throughout Nehemiah, there has been progress and setbacks. There's been opposition from outside, from inside. But finally, it all culminates in this one moment where there, it's believed 30 to 50,000 people gathered in this open square, and it says they gathered as one man. And I can't help but picture those, those flocks of birds, where there's just thousands of them all together, but somehow they stay as one big unit as they, they fly around the sky. That's the image I have here as I think of this crowd, this massive crowd, but it says there's, there's unity and there's oneness among these people. You see, God had been working and stirring among his people, and now they want to hear the scriptures read. And at this point in the story, Nehemiah is going to be a, become a background figure, and Ezra is now back in the spotlight. And I think we see here how God uses different people with different gift sets during different seasons of time to bring about his purposes. So Nehemiah was like this no-nonsense leader, you're rough around the edges. He didn't always say everything just the right way. Uh, and yet God raised him up to rebuild the city. But then Ezra is a different kind of person. He's a scribe, he's a priest, he's a teacher, and God needs him to help rebuild the, the, the people spiritually. Now, Ezra didn't just go away. He's been a part of this, this scene for about 13 years, preaching and teaching uh, in the background and notice what it says here. It says, the people tell Ezra to go get the scriptures. The people tell Ezra to go get the law and bring it here so we can hear it read aloud. Because God's been stirring something up in them, I think, as a result of his teaching and his service to the people in this way. And now they want 
to hear from God's word. And I think this has to be encouraging to Ezra because usually whenever you're in a position like a preacher or a teacher, especially when I was working with students, I'll tell you, you're often the one that's initiating these kinds of things, right? But here the people do it. In Acts chapter 2, it reminds me of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says, at the start of the church, where Luke writes, they, meaning the people, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And again, I'll be honest, whenever... I'm teaching students sometimes, it, it can feel like a one-way street. Like you've done all this preparation and, and everything, be careful to do all that. And then at times it can feel like it's just one big competition. You know, this better grab my attention in the first five minutes, and if not, I'm just checked out. I'm on the phone, checking social media, reading the news, checking my messages. But here we see that the people in this crowd, they are hungry for the word of God. And they're focused, and they want it read, and they want to hear it aloud. Now, this isn't random because it is the first day of the seventh month, which was their most sacred month of the year. And according to Leviticus chapter 23, the first day is called the Feast of Trumpets. And that'd be a day of rest and getting them ready for this sacred month in Israel. And so Ezra opens up the law, and it says he read it from early morning to midday. That's about six hours and about how long this sermon is going to be, just to prepare you for that. And what's interesting is he's just reading it. There's no, there's no video, there's no illustrations, there's no jokes. And, and it says they're attentive. They're listening to what he's, he's doing up there. You know, also here, everyone had to stand. I won't make you do that today, but I thought about it. Uh, so look along with me at, at verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And listen, we're going to go through a name gauntlet here, and I'm going to read every single name, because if my name was in Scripture, I would want it read. So we're going to read these guys' names. So bear with me here. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand, and Padiah, and Mishael, and Malkijah, and Hashum, and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. How did I do? Was that okay? You don't, have, you don't have to clap. It's okay. It's okay. And then verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it all, the people stood. So they construct this platform, this stage for Ezra to stand on so his voice can project to this massive crowd of people. And with a crowd that size, you'd have to have something like that built so everyone can hear what is being said from the stage. And he's got men on his right. He's got men on his left-hand side. And I think that communicates a few things here, that this moment is a big deal. Because not only was their job to help unroll the scroll and to help hold the scroll, I also would imagine... They're helping him read because I can't imagine anyone can read to a crowd that size for that many hours in a day. And so I imagine they're all taking turns reading, but they're also standing, I think, in solidarity together as the word is read. It reminds me of what you see whenever you watch a wedding take place. That whenever everyone's on the stage, the wedding party, the, the, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, because this communicates this moment is a big deal. And we've got witnesses up here on the stage. We've got witnesses out there in the audience. And I think that's partly what's being communicated here. 
that this is a really important occasion. Now, standing up when reading God's word is not a prescription, but we do see such reverence here in the people for God's word. And again, I'm not suggesting that we, we worship the Bible. We shouldn't worship the Bible itself, but we read and study it so it can point us to worship God. That's the point. But it, 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 it is interesting, though, to contrast how some religions treat their writings versus how we treat ours. You know, I've been to New York City a bunch of times taking students up there. We've gone into part of Queens and also part of the Bronx uh, doing ministry with different groups. And, and, and we've done ESL classes with Muslim people and Buddhist people and, and Hindu people, people of all different kinds of faith, trying to introduce the gospel to them through ministries that are already happening up there in the city. And we have to go through some cultural training whenever we go up there because they always tell us, you've got to understand how a Muslim treats the Quran and how it compares to how we might treat the Bible. And so they say things like, you know, a Muslim would never, they would wash their hands and, and their face and their feet before opening up the Quran. They would keep it wrapped up in a cloth to protect it when not in use. They would place it on a high shelf above other books to show that it, in their mind it has authority over other ideas. And they don't ever set it on the floor. And when I hear those kinds of thoughts, I, I kind of get convicted about how I view the word of God sometimes. Again, we were told how to handle our Bible in front of them as, so as not to offend them. And, and so again, how they, how they treat the Quran, of course, can, can flow from this works-based righteousness. I'm going to be really scrupulous and follow all the rules, and I get all that. But if we truly believed that these are the inspired words of God, I think we might treat it differently. And I don't just mean the physical object, but I mean how we revere the words that are contained therein. And so you see in this crowd, this, just this awe and reverence and respect as they open up the word to be read. Now the next point is really simple. It says that Ezra opened up the book. Now this would have been a scroll, but here's my question. Do we open up the book? Many of us, I know, struggle. We struggle to understand. We struggle with, with, um, with time management and those things. But the question for you and I, we have access. Many of us have access, unlike ever before. But do we ever open up the book? Many struggle with doubt and questions. And I hear students say all the time, you know, I, I just don't really sense or feel his presence. And not to be trivial or crass, but... I want to ask the question, well, well, do you ever open up the book? Do you ever read and study and meditate upon his word? There's a quote by D.L. Moody. He says, I have never found a useful Christian who wasn't a student of the Bible. And I know there, I've, I've felt it myself. There are people I've talked with. They say, well, I'd, I just don't like to read. Well, you, you do read, though. You, you read stuff. Just, it may not be this, but you, you read. But if, or, or I, just, I just like to serve. I don't, I don't like to do all that stuff. I don't, I don't need to know all that stuff. But, but the question is, do you ever open up the word of God and study it for yourself and engage in community as you do that with other people? Because we can and we should listen to sermons, of course, and, and, and podcasts, those kinds of things. But when, it, when, when do we ever open up 
the book and get into it for ourselves. Many of us adopt a restaurant spirituality. So someone else prepares a spiritual meal for us once a week. We show up and we consume it, and then we're good for the week. And that's not what God's intent was. We, should ne- we would never treat our bodies that way, eating one meal at a restaurant once a week. We, we'd suffer from, from malnourishment. Yet, yet many of us do that when it comes to our spiritual lives. And so look with me now at um, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6. And this section can be called Rebuilt with Worship. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And here's another name gauntlet again. We'll go through it. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Masaiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Again, we don't ever want to worship a scroll or worship a book, but we allow the word of God to point us to God and to worship him. We see that here in the text. That when they hear the words of God spoken to them, that it, it, it results in worship among the people. I mean, what a scene breaks out here in Jerusalem. They are, they are listening attentively, and this, this crowd bows down in reverence to hearing God's word. And there are, there are men on the stage helping Ezra, but there are also men out there in the crowd helping people understand. They might be out there in the crowd helping to interpret, because some think that the words would be in Hebrew, but many of them just spoke Aramaic. They're in the crowd. It could be that they're reading, and then they're pausing for some time up here on the stage and letting people out there in the crowd interpret and explain and answer questions. And so all this is happening there for about six hours. Um, I picture these leaders out in the crowd kind of like those people at, an, at a special event that have shirts that say, you know, can, how can I help you? Or event staff. Or do you have questions? Come ask me. And, and so it, these people are in the crowd interacting with the people. And it says that the law was read clearly. And it says, and they gave the sense. That means that the people out there in the crowd, they gave insight and understanding to what was being read on the stage. So here's the big idea. God's word is always meant to be heard, understood, and applied. Sometimes in the past, and even still happens today, uh, church leaders would speak in a language or in a manner that was not accessible by the audience, to the audience. I think of when I was a kid, probably three or four years old, one of my first memories as a kid was my mom taking me to this funeral of this person. I didn't know who they were, but they were a, a parent, I think, of one of her friends. And we're in this really ornate church. I won't say what kind. You can probably figure it out. But this really ornate church, and the guy up front was wearing this long, ornate robe, and he was singing in a wholly other language that I did not understand. And I just thought, what are we doing here? But for many years, that's how people did church, didn't understand what's being read or taught. They just showed up, and it was a holy act, a holy moment, they thought. And so they, 
they hear the words in whatever language and they go about their day. But this is never God's intent. You see, there's a responsibility for the listener, but also a responsibility for those of us who preach. Is it clear? Are we giving understanding and insight? That's taking place here in the story. One way this happens here, while Ezra preaches, again, there are people out there in the crowd answering questions, helping them understand. And again, not to be trivial, but this is a little bit how we do things at the Outback on Sunday morning. We have a sermon, then we'll go to discussion and we'll discuss it afterwards for high school and junior high kids. It might be a little bit like how we do a sermon and some of you all go to small groups and discuss what was talked about in the sermon to make sure there's clarity and insight and understanding. And so in a way, it's like right here in the text, you see a little bit of a, a parallel of small groups as you see this playing out in, the, in, in Jerusalem. What's also happening here among the people is something called revival. Because just as the walls needed rebuilding, the people needed to be rebuilt spiritually. And for the last 13 years, Ezra has been quietly behind the scenes praying and teaching and, and, and sowing seeds, and now it's led to this moment where the people are, are craving God's word, and they're being renewed, and they're being revived spiritually. You might say like this, revival is more than the unsaved being saved, but the saved being renewed. I grew up in a church tradition where they would schedule revival week about like late April, I think. I didn't know you could schedule the Holy Spirit like that, but I guess you can. And, and they would schedule revival week. They'd bring in speakers throughout the week, and they would preach um, each night, and they'd call it Revival. And it would happen every year at our church. And the focus was often on the unbeliever, like, you know, getting the unbeliever to become a believer, and that's, that's fair. But revival is more than that. Revival is also about the saved being renewed. Revival should always be connected to, to prayer and preaching and understanding God's word. And so at times, the, the people of God, the people that know all the stuff, they need to be revived. They need to be renewed. They need to remember their first love, which is God. And there should be a, a change of heart and a transformation, even among those who may know all the information. So revival is connected to prayer and, and to preaching, understanding God's word. And, you know, sometimes we go to God's word not for conviction but for affirmation. The same can he said, for how we view church, I heard someone say recently that many of us today don't want a church that challenges us. We want a church that fits us. The same can be said of God's word. Many of us go to God's word and, and we don't want it to challenge us. We want it to, to fit us, to affirm us in ways that we're already living or already believing. And we should never view the church nor God's word in that way. Renewal and revival is always going to mean that there's conviction and repentance, ways in which I recognizing that I'm not walking in line with God's word, God's will. And it should start there. And so they are rebuilt with worship. And then look at verse 9. And this is rebuilt for joy. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, 
Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has, who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So as the word is being read aloud, the people are so moved that they begin to weep. They're so convicted, they begin to shed tears. And it could be that they've just so neglected the word and now they're convicted by that. Or it could be they're hearing the words of the law and they're just convicted about their sin in general. But watch how these leaders respond. Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites... They tell the people, this day is holy. Don't, don't mourn and don't weep. Now, for us, whenever we hear that something is, is holy, we think it's, well, that means it's, that means it's serious. It's solemn. It's, it's maybe sad. But these, these leaders say, no, it's, it's time to celebrate. It's time to be joyful. For them, holy means Let's throw a big party and, and celebrate this occasion. So they say, they say, go eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. So we need to have a, a, a serious talk about barbecue for a moment. Now, I'm not a barbecue connoisseur, but I've tried some of the best in the state. And, you know, when, like, uh, many years ago, um, I would take guys from the men's conference. We'd leave on Saturday morning really early and drive to Lexington to one of the best places in the state, supposedly, and about a 20-mile trip, and we'd wait in line like everyone else does and, and get the brisket and all that for breakfast, of course, and uh, drive back to the men's conference and be a little bit late for the first session, but don't tell anybody I said that. And, uh, but when you get brisket where the fat is cured perfectly, it's like the jelly inside of a donut, like, it's that good. And people drive long distances. They wait in long lines for hours for this kind of thing. And listen, they're not doing that for fish, right? They don't do it for healthy food. They do it for the unhealthy food, of course. And whenever I order brisket, sometimes they ask me a ridiculous question. They'll say, do you want lean or moist? Now, there's only one correct answer to that question. Um, the answer to the question is always, you want the moist stuff. And you know, eating something that's, that's lean like that, that's like eating fat-free ice cream. Like, what's the point? Why did I even bother, right? And so if they ask, you, you want the fatty brisket, the moist stuff, of course the answer is yes. Now, some, of course, are going to argue, but that's not healthy. Well, I have a verse right here that says to eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. And there's an interesting parallel verse over in Leviticus um, and listen, if I ever open up a, a, a barbecue place, we're going to call it Holy Smokes, and it's going to be the verse, this verse on the wall of this place. And here's the verse. Um, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. Now, the priests would offer on the altar the fatty parts of a bull. That's what them here is referring to. And this is the very best parts of the animal. Like a, like a filet mignon or like the most savory part of the animal. And they did this for the burnt offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, whenever those would come around. 
They were never to drink the blood or to eat the fat. The blood was reserved for a special purpose, like atoning for their sin. The fat was burned up on the altar as a choice offering for the Lord. But then here in Nehemiah chapter 8, watch what happens. The leaders tell them, they say, go eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. It's time to celebrate. It's time to throw a big party. And it says here, of course, drink the sweet wine. And that word sweet is also found in Song of Solomon chapter 5. Don't turn there. You'll get distracted. But not only were they to celebrate, but they were to share with those that are in need. Don't miss this. When they're celebrating, when we are celebrating, that's when we, have a, that's when we, we, are, we are most prone to think about only of ourselves and not what others might need. That didn't happen here. I think of Tim Cartwright, our junior high pastor and local outreach pastor, how many years ago he challenged us as a church for during the holiday season to do a gift drive and a food drive and feed families down in the outback in the Creekside building during the holiday season. This is an example of that. We don't want to forget those that may have less just because we're in the middle of a festival and a big feast and a big celebration. That's what's also happening here in Israel, here in Jerusalem. I also want you to understand that there's a, there's a really key phrase here in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, it's easy for us to focus on the festival, the big party, thinking that our joy comes from that. That's not what he's saying here. Eating the fat and drinking the sweet wine isn't where we find joy, but it's simply a celebration that we ultimately find it in him. And we're celebrating that. If you recall in John 17, verse 13, where Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, what does he pray for his people, all of his followers throughout history? He prays this. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What was Jesus about to do? He's about to be betrayed. He's about to go to the cross. In spite of that circumstance, it says here that they may have my joy that I presently have fulfilled in themselves. He is praying for disciples of all generations when he prays in John chapter 17. He is praying for his disciples' joy, for my joy, and for your joy. That it would go from himself and be extended out to us as we think and meditate upon our position before him. So there's a a commentary that Derek Thomas wrote where he shares insight on where we find joy. One of his points is that joy comes from knowing that we are loved. So joy is relational, not just circumstantial. You see, Israel had committed idolatry against God, and that's why they went into exile. But now they are regathered here in the city at this festival, and this celebration is a reminder of how much God loves them, how much God cares for them. So joy comes from knowing we are loved. Joy comes from knowing that God provides. The people of God are people who remember the past, allowing it to shape them in the present, so they can live toward the future. And it's easy to hear this and think only about blessing, but sometimes God provides a trying circumstance to remind us that he is enough. We think of provision like it's just, it's the stuff that I want. Well, no, provision can be stuff that 
you may not think you want, but God knows you might need so that you'll know that he's enough in the middle of whatever you're walking through. And then thirdly, joy comes from knowing the best is yet to be. Joy comes not from present circumstances, but because we already know the end of the story. We know how it ends, and we can find joy in that reality. So right after this first day in Nehemiah 8, where all the families are gathered hearing the word read, now everyone's tired, and, and, and some of the people go home at this point, but then the next day, in verse 13, it says, on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra to scribe in order to study the words of the law. So on the second day, all the men now regather in the city, and they hold a big men's conference. And they're going to study the law again, and they discover that God had this command for them to hold the Feast of Booths during this month. And this had not been celebrated for many years. Imagine not celebrating Easter or Christmas for over 100 years, and suddenly you discover it again. And, and the kids are excited, like, wait, we, we get to do what? We get, we get free stuff? We get presents? There'd be this excitement taking place in, in the families. That's what's happening here. So they're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths. They've ignored it for many, many years. The Feast of Booths was a seven-day feast in which they would build little tents or little dwellings with branches and, and palm branches and olive branches. They would dwell in these things like a tent for, for seven days. This was done to remember their time in the wilderness and how God provided for them out there in the wilderness. This is kind of like camping, but with spiritual meaning. Now, I've never been a big fan of camping. You know, let's take a vacation where everything's more difficult than normal. It's not my idea of a vacation. Listen, there are two kinds of people. There, there are those who like camping and those who like the idea of camping. So when I was a kid, my dad bought us a little tent. I thought it was to go camping. We never really went camping, though. He just kind of gave us a tent, and we decided to make a camp in the front yard occasionally. And we would go out and sleep in the front yard or the backyard. And it was fun as a kid. And, you know, when you're a kid, you can sleep almost anywhere, right, if you're tired enough. But as you get a little bit older... It's more difficult, and you just think, I don't really want a rock stabbing me in the back in the middle of the night, so I'll go to my bed inside the house. And so we would do this as kids, and after doing this multiple times, I became one of those who just liked the idea of camping at that point. But the Feast of Booze was, was kind of like this. Like, some would come from outside the city and camp there in Jerusalem, and, but for those who lived there in the city, they would just maybe set up camp outside their house so they could participate in the, in the Feast of Booze. And the idea was that during this time, they're, they're reading the law, they're celebrating this festival, and this would go on for several, for, for seven days. And you can imagine it's a really festive time at first, but if it rains or there's a storm, well, you're still out there in the, in the dwelling that you built, and this is a reminder of how God provided for them even during hardship in the wilderness. And they would, they would throw this big feast for seven days to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So this is the month of Tishri for Israel, the seventh month. It began with the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the month. Then the Day of Atonement is the tenth day of the month. And then Feast of Booths starts 15th day and lasts for seven days. So most of this story takes place the first and second day of the month. But in a normal month of Tishri, there would be a Day of Atonement. We don't see that here. We assume they celebrated it, though. 
And this was their most holy day, and it'd be a day of repentance and prayer and fasting and resting. The Day of Atonement was like a a serious day, a, a solemn day. On this day, the high priest would, would go into the Holy of Holies and intercede for the people there in the temple. He'd do this once a year on the Day of Atonement. He would also take two goats, and one would be sacrificed on behalf of their sins. The other would, he'd place his hands and pray over the goat and, and confess the sins of the people, and then let that goat go free. It was called the scapegoat. And all of this, of course, pointed to Jesus. But notice that this, this one day, the Day of Atonement, a serious day, a solemn day, is followed by the Feast of Booths, which is seven days of feasting and partying and enjoying fellowship and enjoying fellowship with God. You know, some people are, are, are Day of Atonement people only. Others are Feast of Booths people only. Another way to say it is some are Good Friday people and others are Resurrection Sunday people, but we need both. We need both. Because if we're going to be rebuilt from within, it's only going to happen if we recognize how conviction and repentance ultimately is the gateway to understanding his grace and his mercy and having his joy given to us. I like what Derek Thomas says here. He says, conviction of sin is a means, not an end. It should never just stop with conviction. It should never just stop there. The Spirit of God convinces of sin to induce repentance. And one of the more striking features of revival movements is the depth of repentance into which both saints and sinners are led. Revival is for the believer and the unbeliever. Repentance involves turning away from sin and toward God, and there is no true experience of grace without this unmasking of our sin by the Spirit. So the seriousness of of Good Friday should be what fuels the joy of, of a Resurrection Sunday. The seriousness of Day of Atonement is what should fuel the excitement and the joy of the Feast of Booths. And so this morning, as we're going to stand and sing, this is a celebration of the joy we have found in Christ. But if you're someone who's not yet a Christ follower, I want to invite you to respond and just as you sit in your seat or come and talk to me afterwards and we can pray together. If you find in yourself that you are crying out, you want to cry out to God in repentance and surrender and give your life to him and put your faith and trust in him and surrender your life to him today, for salvation. I want to invite you to do that this morning. Or maybe you're a Christ follower, but you've just, you've grown cold, you've grown, you've grown stale in your walk with him, and you need renewal, and need to be revived. And you've been so focused on the, the solemn and the sad and the circumstances and, and the guilt and the shame and you haven't embraced what he really wants for you, which is his grace and his mercy and the joy that's ultimately found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God who 
You want us to understand who you are. And you want us to understand your holiness. And you want us to understand our sin and our brokenness. And how far we are from you apart from Jesus Christ. But at the same time, you want us to to know that so that we can come to know you. So we can come to know your grace and your mercy. So we can come to know the joy that you provide us in a relationship with you. God, I pray for anyone here today that is, a, is doubting or having questions or suffering from unbelief, that they would understand who you are, who you really are, and what you're really offering to them. God, that they would not see following you as a lesser life, but they would see a relationship with you as the fullest life that someone can possibly live. We pray this in your name. Amen.